Hi, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Opera After Dark. So we don't really have a sound effect for you guys or any kind of music because obviously we're all sort of operating in a very weird time, um, probably the darkest timeline. Um. <laughs> Man, this I, this is uh, even darker than I anticipated. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought we. <laughs> It's still okay. We need to we need to shine some light on it's going to be okay. Uh we will all hopefully be all right. On a positive note, this is the first time that the three of us have been virtually together in this time. So that's really nice that that we could figure this out to record entirely remotely and quote-unquote, see one another. Yeah, that's right. right. It's exciting. It's been about a month, I think, since we've all seen each other. Yeah, if you're listening to this around the time that it's released, there's no way uh, around knowing that we're referring to the COVID-19 world where everybody is socially isolated and in different places. Um, If you're listening to this well after the fact, then... Then you remember. I mean, you're never going to forget. <laughs> Consider it a cultural artifact of its time. Jeez. Mm, right. Well, we thought that with all of this happening and uh, a lot of uh, consequences going down, especially in the world of classical music and opera, that uh, we would talk about a, a little bit, you know, what's going on right now in the classical world uh, amidst COVID-19, but then also talk about some other times throughout history where uh, there have been periods of crisis in the world and how that affected opera uh, and or classical music and what some of the responses were uh, with that in mind. I think it's fair to say kind of right off the bat that the performing arts across the board are super struggling right now. And it's not it's not just opera. It's it's basically all all musicians, performers of every genre, every every um, style and kind of school of thought. And so I think that out of these kinds of things, there's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty that performers from every industry are feeling and administrators, uh, creatives that are involved in those companies. Um, but we also see a lot of of good in kind of goodwill happening, I guess you can say, and people really trying to find ways to still make art and share art and share music and share their passions, even when the world, the reality that we're living in at the moment is so different from what we anticipated even a couple months ago. So I do think that's, there is positive things that we can find um, amidst this pretty crazy, um, extraordinary, unprecedented kind of situation that we find ourselves in definitely and i think in a way maybe exciting is not the word but it's interesting to see how companies and performers and administrators are sort of adapting Mm -hmm. to this new reality and finding ways for like the art uh to continue um definitely these larger companies like the met um for anybody that doesn't know they pretty much are streaming an opera every night for the foreseeable future and also 
I don't know if anyone doesn't know about this, but the Met has an app. It's called the Metropolitan Opera, like Met on Demand. And for not a whole lot of money, you basically just download the service and you have access to their entire catalog of operas from present day, like going way back to like the 1960s um, when the new house opened in in 66. Um, And you have access to all of that, all the video, all the audio, you can stream it on your TV. Um, And so I think companies are really exploring like virtual ways that they can still make um, an impact in the Yeah, in a way, it's almost like, it's like trying to drink from a fire hose. It's like all of these, (laughs) so many companies, seriously. No, it really um, is, it really is. If you just wanna have an idea of the scope, Opera Wire has done a good job of putting out like the list of all the different live streams that are available. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you, in order to watch them all, that would literally have to be all that you're doing these days, which I mean. I'm sure there's some, some people that maybe. Yeah, got a lot more time. So yeah. they yeah. can check it out. There's, but it's um, a, it is a little bit overwhelming. It is pretty mm-hmm. overwhelming because it's like some of the things are timed. So it's like if you want to catch that particular free stream of something, then you have to tune in within like a certain 24-hour period. And other things is just like the floodgates have opened and they're just offering like free access to things for a temporary period of time while basically the world is in quarantine. And so it is it is almost overwhelming the amount of options that you have now. Um, mm-hmm. And there's some pretty like, crazy and interesting treasures that you can stumble across. Um, I have two fun treasures to share uh, oh, for people. Please. So the first is like my absolute favorite production of Lucia de Lamamore. I'm pretty sure is either streaming for a temporary period of time or is somehow accessible by the Bayerischer Staatsoper. And this features... Can I, can I guess what this is? Yes. It, it features is my it... favorite singer Deanna Damrau it's Deanna Damrau is it the one where she's got a gun and she's like waving it around yes it's set (laughs) it's set in like 1950s um right and like America family yeah sort of she has got a gun exactly Mm -hmm. they they Mm -hmm. sort of based it off of like Kennedy era inspiration and so like the costumes are are gorgeous and the whole idea is that like all the social pressures that exist in the story of Lucia de Lamamore in the original, like they imagined could also happen in this like 1950s era um, political intrigue kind of thing. So that's one treasure that is out there that I'm sure people can find. And the other one that I just have to share because it's so crazy is um, Mozart's Abduction from the Seraglio. And oh, this is, is this the is this the Home Depot? production no there's a home depot production that's that's la finta oh right 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 (laughs) oh that's a great one too i love that one that's an an oldie but goodie that one is great yeah um no this is abduction from the seraglio where pacific opera project did a production that is themed star trek as, as star trek the original series um and you can find the whole thing right now on YouTube. I don't know how long it's going to be up there, but you can see the whole thing. And so I watched a large portion of it the other day, and they did translate all of the singing into English. And so this I found very interesting because they also, like, took a little bit of liberties with some of the text to make it match, like, the Star Trek vibe. <laughs> sure. uh, Was there but- a character named Scotty? 
I mean, there's definitely a character modeled after him. Nice. Uh, like, there's Klingons in this. There is, like, every weird race that ever got, you know, uh, some screen time Trek. on Star mm-hmm. Trek, the original series, is featured. It is bananas. It is super kitschy. So if, like, kitschy and hokey is not your thing, don't look it up. But if you want to see, like, Mozart in a very hokey kind of interpretation, it is wild and unlike like anything opera. I've ever seen. It has it's, Opera After Dark fun. written all over it. Yeah. Yes, it is fun. It is very fun. And I have to say, they did a great job, like, committing to the concept so totally. you gotta you gotta commit if you're gonna do something like that Definitely. oh yeah there's a lot yeah. of clips on it and the whole thing is available right now online so check it out well, if we've tweaked your interest as if there was not an, a ton of opera out there to stream there's also a bunch of musicals that are available and plays and tours mm-hmm. of art museums mm-hmm. so uh it's content Galore. So I guess we should say amidst all of that free glorious content, thanks for tuning into Opera After Dark. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You have many have... choices with your, your digital content consumption. It's true. So we talked about before before we started recording, we talked a little bit about what are some of the moments in history or places in time and place that have experienced this kind of opera amidst a time of crisis or what has happened to opera in different times of crisis throughout history because this is not the first difficult time that opera has ever seen and it probably won't be the last mm-hmm. so right you know what first put it into my mind what was when you see all of these things that are like it, it actually is a lot of sports it's like wimbledon is canceled for the first time since world war ii Mm. Or, you know, the Olympics are postponed since the first time and whatever. Or you hear things like, this is the first time this happened since the Spanish flu. And right. you, you like, even without doing any research, you have to think like, well, surely during these times, classical music and opera were also affected. Like that was also a part of it. And I mean, we've done a little bit of research and uh, that's certainly been validated. Um, so we just want to talk about a few of those things. Maybe should we go chronologically? Should we go to the way back? Or we just, let's just jump around. I think we just jump around. Like yeah. everything's everything's loose right now. <laughs> exactly. You know? So one of the first things that came to my mind, especially because there's been so many comparisons to the Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like looking into that time period, but also then knowing that the Spanish flu came right at the end of World War One, And... Anybody who's gone through some music history classes uh, knows that there were there were several musicians that were involved or, or several composers that were involved in World War One because I mean most Europeans were involved uh, in some capacity whether they were doing the fighting themselves or you know their community was was involved. Um, so there's several examples there, but one of the the Notable examples is the composer Berg, who composed Wozzeck. Mm-hmm. And Elspeth, you know a lot more about this than I do, so I feel like you should say a little thing about it. But his 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 music changed pre and post, right? Pre and post well, World War One, definitely. So Alban Berg, um, second Viennese school, all that nonsense, whatever, it doesn't matter. We talked about it in previous episodes. <laughs> so just <laughs> listen to the back catalog. Um, but listen he, to the whole archive. Listen to the whole archive. Um, and if Kyle, you think that I know more about you, Naomi knows 
way more than I do, so she can just jump in whenever she wants. Um, Alban <laughs> Bear fought in World War One. Um, he enlisted, he fought, and the things that he saw obviously forever changed him. And his music was always a little out there for the time. Um, he was not as crazy as uh, some of the, as like Schoenberg, who was his his teacher berg was really interested in the idea of taking this crazy idea of uh, like the second viennese school atonalism nothing matters everything's chaos um and adapting it for the ears of an audience that's used to listening to like Mahler. um mm -hmm. so a lot of his early stuff was pretty conservative but then vatsek was basically his reaction to the stuff that he saw um during the the first world war and so it's just radically uh, different than anything else that he had done before and i'm trying to think naomi what's like a really good example of something from vatsek from vatsek like, from vatsek well overall das, das, das moon is blut or something like <laughs> overall it's a pretty dark piece right? oh yeah i mean like oh, definitely so, the whole like the the character the title character is like used and abused by all of these people around him and he's downtrodden and he has a a child outside of wedlock and his his partner marie ends up essentially cheating on him but you know she also has like no great options either and so it's kind of like everybody is everybody is in pain and struggling with something in that I, opera i have to understand politically in germany after world war one which germany lost um there were huge differences in social classes mm -hmm. they were the extremely rich that were doing fine then everyone else was basically living just destitute which contributes a little bit to like the rise of nationalism and, and then like the rise of nazism and the rise of hitler um so everybody at that time basically unless you were incredibly independently wealthy was was really struggling um and Vatsek is a, has a lot to do with you know sort of the everyman downtrodden by all of the forces in his life. Which right. Which culminates in basically, it's like a Hamlet kind of everybody dies. <laughs> like, yeah, there's no like... one's left surviving on the stage except like Laertes. Um, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, like there's, well, we were talking about this before we started recording, like the super macabre ending where it's like basically a murder-suicide of, like Vatsek murders Marie and then Marie or and then he commits suicide and then their child is like the one thing left alive of their family unit at the end. Right. The kid's and, okay. Right. But then like as the curtain falls, you're like, that but is kid the kid is, okay? He's gonna have a horrible life because he's an orphan now, right? And yeah. so Yeah. But was his life that great before? Probably not. I don't but... know. Oh, okay, let's not go down that rabbit <laughs> hole. Sorry. All right, look, no one no one is great. Like Tiger King, no one is great. In oh no, that's another that's another rabbit hole that I'm not going to go down. That's another one. Kyle, Just Kyle, nip wait, that in the bud. Wait, I think it's getting too depressing. Have you seen Tiger King? I haven't, and I feel like it, now it's like it's too late. Like I'm in a point where I just have to like stick to that and not watch it. But you I don't could. know. But everybody just talks about how horrible it is. Like it's like watching a train wreck. Yeah, yeah. 
I don't know if I, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't know if I want to infuse that into my life right now. I, I, like, when it ended, I had, like, even more questions than at the beginning. Like, it's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is, it is a kind of twisted I did not even know existed. Yeah. In this world. Well, um, moving, moving straight right. on from that. Oh, I actually, fine. I, I want to mention one other thing uh, in thinking about World, world War One. And really, I think that'll be a, a common thread as we talk about these different moments of crisis, that there are some lasting effects or like lasting memories that then get infused into art for generations. Like w- one example from from World War One, and, and this one I'm going to have to throw over to Naomi because everybody here knows more than a- anything than I do. Um, <laughs> but in any case, um, a very famous poem that oh. came out of World War One <laughs> is in Flanders Fields. And part of why I throw this to Naomi is because she has the whole thing memorized, which I don't know if that's a specifically Canadian thing or a specifically Naomi thing. I feel like it's a uh, Naomi thing. I feel like it's a maybe Canadian, like half Canadian, half Naomi thing. So mm. Yeah. Well, hold John, on. Before, okay, okay. before you jump into it, I also okay. just want to say that, that that poem has become very famous and then there have been many settings of that poem to music. Yes. Subsequently, and even still, people, like in modern present day, people set that poem to music. It's something that is still very emotionally moving and evocative, even though people are living in a world that's 100 years after this moment. So mm-hmm. that's something that I wanted to point out, is that when you have these significant times of crisis, there's always a lasting effect. So please, Naomi. Naomi. We, I think we need at least a recitation, and okay, then, well, and well, then perhaps the, we can of the, of the whole thing. It, I mean, it's not that long, but okay, all right. So, just for some context, "In Flanders Fields" is a poem that is written by John McRae. He was a soldier in World War One, and um, he basically survived the Battle of Flanders and lost a lot of his friends in that battle. And wrote this poem, like, in the aftermath of that particular battle. And so because he is Canadian and because um, because this poem survived with him, basically, um, it is something that is, like, deeply embedded into the Canadian kind of iconolo- iconography of World War One because every November on Remembrance Day, people wear poppies. Um, and it's like a symbol of remembrance and it's like a tribute to our veterans. And you like, when you purchase these plastic poppies that you pin on your coat, all of the proceeds go towards veterans. And so, um, that is almost like our national symbol of remembrance is the, the red poppy with the black center and the poppies, um, were growing in Flanders at the time of this battle, which is what leads to this poem and so, oh, I can't mess it up now. The poem, <laughs> the poem is set by like hundreds of times, hundreds of composers have set it to music. Um, and it's sung by choirs all the time, every November and other times of the year. Um, I've actually really like um, a version of it that sets the poem to the tune of Green Sleeves. It actually works really well. Um, we should we'll listen to that, but for but first before that, okay, we're gonna need a recitation. Do it, okay, all right. 
In Flanders fields the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place and in the sky the larks, still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amidst the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. From you, from failing hands, we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies blow in fan- though poppies grow in Flanders fields. Wow. Very well done. A few I feel fumbles. Like, a few fumbles. Yeah, but well, that just that just tells people you're doing it from memory, you know. I so. am doing it from memory. <laughs> okay, so with that, uh, this is Naomi's favorite version of "In Flanders Fields." Let's take a listen. In Flanders fields, the poppies blow between the crops. That mark our place And in the sky The larks still bravely singing Fly scarce heard amid guns below We are the dead Short days ago Basically, the reason that John McRae wrote this is because um, one of his best friends was killed in that battle, and uh, John buried him, and he could only mark his grave with a simple wooden cross. And in the field where he buried him, uh, the poppies were already beginning to bloom between all the crosses that were there. So he felt like he he couldn't really explain his his grief and his sorrow um, to his friends and family. And so he instead wrote this poem and it was actually the second last poem that he ever wrote. Wow. So another more specifically opera fact that I thought would be interesting to share is that related to world war one, the outbreak of world war one actually caused a quite a bit of a kind of like internal, um, Tense kerfuffle, yes, at the Metropolitan Opera, uh, because um, they they basically called for like a ban on all German opera during that time, and it got quite contentious because not everybody wanted to institute a ban on all German opera. Um, Wagner people is the Wagner people. So. Essentially, on the evening of April 2nd, 1917, uh, President Wilson had asked Congress for a declaration of war against Germany. And this news reached the Metropolitan Opera House during a performance of Reginald de Coven's The Canterbury Pilgrims. Oh, and, okay. um, classic. 
And then, so they kind of, they stopped the performance and made an announcement between the third and fourth act. And then after the announcement, the, the orchestra played the Star Spangled Banner and, um, and apparently there was like a bunch of really important people in the audience. And, um, one of the singers was actually so overcome by the news that she actually fainted on stage. And, um, and then from there, um, there was a kind of a huge argument that erupted within the opera house and gained kind of some public attention about people calling for the ban of German opera at the Met during that time. But uh, interestingly, apparently this did not repeat itself in World War II, which is an interesting kind of thing. So it's like when World War I broke out, there was all of this discussion about whether or not they should actually perform operas in German or German operas at all. And um, that did not really have a resurgence when the next World War happened. So... Like they yeah. were fine with doing German language opera in World War Two. Well, it just didn't. It. I don't know if everyone it wasn't was an issue. Fine with it, Every, but it everybody didn't be, was. Yeah, it didn't become a major issue. That's interesting. Yeah, there's a really good article about it that really goes deep into the whole thing called "When Wagner Was Forbidden: The Campaign Against German Music in World War One." If you if you need some light reading. Right. Yeah, that sounds very fun. Uplifting. So shall we, perhaps we should transition then to World War II because yeah, there are some and, other interesting tidbits. And I think it's just important to mention that between the World Wars, like World War One to World War Two, you did have this like flourishing of art mm-hmm. in, especially in Germany after World War One. we call it the Weimar Republic. And even though, yes, it, also had a lot of social economic issues kind of that were a fallout of the war it also it it led to this kind of huge resurgence in a creation of art and so that's when you get composers like Hindemith, Kurt Weill, um, um, Ernst Krennic they all start kind of feverishly composing in this in-between period and a lot of the things that they composed led into them being labeled as degenerate artists when World War II hit. And so um, this kind of brings us into World War II. And so even though World War II is a horrific event that caused like mass disruption across the Western world, or across the world generally, and, you know, millions of people died, there were some composers that were able to escape Europe and make it to the U.S. um, so that they were not killed in those conflicts or were not killed in concentration camps. And so one of the positive things that has come out of World War II is kind of this wave of immigration of composers that then settled in North America and then became huge contributors to cultural life in the United States following the war. Yeah. I think that's fair to point out. So what about the people still in Europe during World War II? I mean, we have some documentation on, it seems like most opera houses being shut down during that time. Yes, I mean, opera houses were kind of an interesting thing during World War II because um, the opera houses in Germany were basically co-opted 
by the Nazi party as symbols of power. And Hitler was a huge um, opera fan. And so he definitely used opera as a kind of cultural propaganda in different ways. And then the buildings themselves were used in different ways, depending on kind of what country you were in. And so I found this really interesting tidbit about the Royal Opera in London, um, that during World War II, it was actually considered the super club of its day. And it was converted into a dance hall where it played um, very lighthearted music that encouraged socializing. So a kind of socializing that would not be condoned right now. Um, (laughs) Not allowed. And so apparently it hosted around 1,500 dancers every night. And they would have these huge dance parties there. Um, And it became this like mecca for the duration of the war as a dance hall. Wow. It's interesting how the specific conflict that we're going through right now is such that I feel like in times of war or or other conflicts in the past, people have looked to the arts as like, you know, we still have the arts. Like we still, this reminds us of, you know, the, the joys of life and being human and, and all of that. And that's something that's particularly challenging about this social um, isolating is mm-hmm. that we, <laughs> by that very nature, like we can't consume many arts in the ways that we used to like that's actually one of the more dangerous things that people could do right now is go sit with 3,000 other people in an opera house and watch a performance definitely and I think it's a huge difference between the idea of like civil unrest and the kind of crisis that that causes and political unrest and the idea of of a health crisis are so very different. Um, And so the arts were used in these times of civil unrest and political unrest to kind of rally people behind certain causes or, or give people a sense of levity in what was otherwise a very grim and difficult time. So, yeah, I I did. Oh, go ahead. I did find um, they had a list of, of rules of behavior for the, dance hall oh tell us uh, yes so on the dance cards um it was listed that there was no spinning or grotesque steps permitted ladies <laughs> ladies must remove their hats except at tea dances um you must dance it says please dance around the floor to the right dance of course or please dance right around the floor and leave the floor at the end of each number and wow. um, and then there was also something about um, the management refused the right to re- or re- sorry the management reserved the right to refuse admission to to people. Um, no tables may be privately reserved, and any alcoholic drinks brought into the ballroom will be confiscated. Oh no! But I'm sure hopefully they were selling people... it inside. I'm sure people found a way to bring booze into this. <laughs> I'm sure hall. they did. <laughs> you can't have a dance hall without booze. I wonder, considering what ended up going on, and with the bombings and everything, how strictly these rules were actually enforced after you know the first month that this thing was converted into a dance hall. I don't, I don't know, but um, 
it basically functioned this way, like, as long as possible in London during that time. And it really wasn't until after World War II that the Royal Opera as a company, like, really established itself as a solid company. Before that, I was reading up on this, and it seemed like it was almost like a rotating roster of guest stars and conductors. So the idea of, like, the Royal Opera as a cohesive company was pretty loose, and it wasn't until after World War II that they really kind of consolidated some kind of strong vision as an organization or company and, like, put down roots in, and made themselves into the Royal Opera that we know them to be today. So when I was looking at that, I thought, that's interesting because they're actually quite young compared to other companies. Like, most other companies have been around for, like, hundreds of years, some of them. I mean, the Met goes back to the, the late 1800s, but... There's other companies like in in France, you have um, companies that are date back to like the 1700s and or some even earlier. So it was interesting that the kind of turnover of the war and use of that building then resulted in kind of a coalescing of the company itself in the years after the war. Yeah, I would also add that I I was reading similarly about the, um, the Royal Opera in London and how the funding structure, how the opera was supported, changed after World War II. And there oh, really? was much much more like public funding that was worked into the model following World War II because, you know, the government and the, the people at large wanted to see those types of things returned to, you know, what they had been previously. However, before World War II, it was mainly a private venture. It was like, you know, the house was owned privately and... You know, it was a money-making venture for people, but it became more of a public art form following the war. So that's as, interesting. As part yeah. of that, did they also try and make, like, ticket prices really accessible? I don't know. That's a good question because I'm not sure. I mean, that's all relative because depending on who you talk to. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's, that's true. What's accessible that's to true. one person is not to another. So right. I but think I, I'm – oh, sorry. Go ahead, Kyle. No, no. Please. I was just going to say, if we're going to put a positive spin on everything that's going on right now, I think it'll be interesting when this is all done, whenever that may be, what opera companies decide to do to adapt and to and to change and what, you know, singers decide to do um, and just how this art form is going to, to change. I mean, it's been around since like 1700. Um <laughs> <laughs> so it's gone through many different iterations and it's going to be interesting to see what this does to to change it yeah i think we would all agree i mean i, I don't want to be too bold but i think we would all agree that we still enjoy opera more when it's sung live as compared to you yes. know digitally Definitely, yes but i do think that this is probably going to whet more appetites for consuming opera digitally Mm -hmm. and so more companies may have to find a way to compete and the interesting thing about that is that you know a lot of companies have already adopted some sort of live stream model but that's a lot of really big companies and so Mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see what the mid-size and smaller companies end up doing to try to compete because if you have a a mid-size company they're just not going to be able to crank out an hd opera recording like the Met is. 
Mm-hmm. But if their audience wants to engage with that type of content, then they're going to have to find some other way to to make a similar form of content just with their own unique spin. So that it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. I also think it'll be interesting to see how our con- our concept of like physical spaces that opera needs to happen or has traditionally happened in how those change. I think we already saw big kind of evolution in this regard happening in the last decade or so as we've had just like a, a huge resurgence or or flourishing of indie opera companies generally since like the turn of the 2000s I feel like indie opera has taken off as its own type of thing and all these much smaller companies have really challenged traditional ideas of where opera needs to happen like does it have to happen in an opera house can it happen outside can it happen in someone's home can it happen you know in these kind of non-traditional venues and so I feel like we we were already seeing so much um, expansion of the definition of what opera can be before this health crisis and now it will be interesting to see how that gets pushed even further afterward as people start experimenting with different ways of reaching people yeah i did on a funnier note i did see i don't know if it was an article or or what but some somebody had put somewhere that maybe in in the world of covid19 or or post covid19 people will feel more self-conscious about coughing during (laughs) opera performances maybe and i'm like please god because that (laughs) is a huge pet peeve of mine I mean, well, you not... can't help it sometimes. Oh, you can help it. Okay. I, th- I mean, there are very rare occasions, but then, like, you might have to excuse yourself, or maybe you shouldn't be at a live performance if you're in a health state that you're coughing uncontrollably. Sometimes you just have a little tickle in your throat, Kyle. And that's what cough drops are for. Okay, fair. Well, maybe maybe every venue needs to adopt the Carnegie Hall approach, which is they have like giant buckets of Ricola in the lobby. Everybody needs a sponsorship from Ricola. It's Ricola and Halls and whoever else that's going to do the big sponsorship deals. The companies are going (laughs) to explode. So coming back to World War II briefly, or I guess post-World War II, uh, because there was so much bombing that did happen... Uh, throughout the conflict, there were tragically several theaters that were damaged and either needed to be reconstructed or, in some cases, an entirely new venue needed to be built, which I imagine in some cases was positive because then you got these new state-of-the-art venues. It's always sad when you lose a theater with a bunch of history. Um, But we have a couple of specific examples. Do either of you want to jump in? Well, I can... I can set us up for the story in saying that uh, the Vienna Staatsoper uh, in Vienna, Austria, was one of those buildings that was devastated during the war. So on March 12th, 1945, uh, it was severely damaged during a bombing. What, what went down with the construction? They got a little help with the construction of the Vienna Staatsoper? Is that correct? They, they did. Uh, the United States government gave them money to help uh, rebuild the Staatsoper. And as a It's a thank decent you, thing to do, considering they were involved with destroying it. <laughs> fair. <laughs> or damaging um, it, yeah. Um, and so when the Met 
opened the uh, the current Metropolitan Opera House at Lincoln Center in 1966, um, the Vienna government, as a, a thank you, the Austrian government, excuse me, as a thank you, um, sent them those crystal chandeliers, the the Sputniks, the Swarovski crystal chandeliers, um, and so that's why they're there. They were a gift in repayment Austria. of in the repay- kindness gift that in, was a gift shown. in kind. Mm-hmm. The right. that was shown. So who knows what we will see going <laughs> forward. People reaching out to help others in this time. Who knows? I mean, it's a little bit a different kind of crisis, but. Right. I don't know. I like to think that it's going to bring out the best in people. <laughs> right. Yeah. Of course. I will say, maybe this is a good moment to say that um, you've seen a lot of artists doing some digital concerts and performances and asking people to donate to, is it Artist Relief Fund or mm-hmm. Artist Relief Tree? Relief Tree. Exactly. Yep. So if if you've not heard of that, you might want to Google search that. That'd be a great way to support artists during this time. And also try to think of your local, uh, or whatever is nearest to you, your local arts organizations because they are undoubtedly struggling during this time Definitely. Um, having had performances canceled and not to mention in times of economic downturns the people that normally support the opera you know i mean some people aren't as affected and they're able to help you know still support these these companies financially but donations just they become less and less in times where um, there's financial uncertainty because people feel like they need to hold on to their money, and understandably so. So if you're in a position where you can even give just a small bit to your local company, it really means a lot right now. Absolutely. So one more time period that I think is really interesting to think about in the context of opera in times of crisis is a period of time that a lot of people probably don't know this about me, but I love the city of Berlin and I am like deeply fascinated with the history of Berlin and so there's a particular time period following World War II that becomes very interesting in that area of Germany because this is when you have the divide between east and west Mm -hmm. and this is when you the Iron Curtain goes up and then almost overnight on August 13th 1961 uh, East Berlin builds a physical wall that divides the city and so there is a lot of stories about opera singers who are basically cut off from going to where they need to go to get to work because the divide between East and West actually carved up the um, prevailing opera houses, the physical structures um, that were kind of the biggest um, institutions and venues at the time were split between East and West. Singers who were living in West Berlin were just not allowed to cross into East Berlin to go to work. And so, and likewise, singers who were in East Berlin were not allowed to leave to go into West Berlin to perform other places. And so the Staatsoper was in the East and the Deutsche Oper was in the West. And then um, you have this strong divide between musical activity between these two places. And so I've heard stories about singers going or trying to go into East Berlin for singing gigs and that if they were from uh, the outside, basically if you were not from East Berlin, then you were basically like tailed the whole time. You had 
kind of like a, a Stasi agent or somebody who was watching you to make sure that you didn't do anything untoward while you were there. And it was very difficult to have like open and honest relationships with your colleagues there because they were all under surveillance as well as part of living in, in the East. And so this was a really big deal for people um, in the opera world because the Staatsoper was this thriving company and then it kind of goes under this huge lockdown um, under East Berlin control. And so then um, when the wall fell, there was this really important moment where um, Daniel Barenboim, who's a conductor, was uh, working on a recording of Cosi von Tutte with the Philharmonic in Germany at the time. And the day after the wall fell, the orchestra asked if they could do a concert for um, the people of East Berlin on the next day on November or within the coming days. So I think the wall fell on November 9th. And then the orchestra asked if they could do a concert on the 12th since, the, since they were all there. And basically Daniel Barenboim said he would love to do it, but he had two conditions. One, that the concert be free and that it is only for citizens of East Germany. And so it was very symbolic because they would have had to like cross into the West to come see this performance. And so apparently... Uh, thousands and thousands of people queued up to go to this concert and arriving as early as 4 a.m. that day. And uh, they played Beethoven's first piano concerto and Beethoven's seventh symphony and the overture to Cozy. And wow. yeah, and so it was this like huge momentous thing that they did as a symbol of like the newfound freedom that people had now to travel between uh, East and West. So... Yeah, that's a perfect yeah. example of how, you know, art unites people and art adapts. And uh, yeah, I think it's important to remember that in crazy times, like right now, I mean, it may change how it compared to how we consumed art before, but it's going to survive. Like it's going to be there in some capacity and there will be people making art no matter what. So it's a nice thing to remember. For sure. I think I think people turn to music and they turn to art for for so many reasons, but especially in times of crisis, especially a time like this, I think they turn to it for solace and for for looking for beauty and good things in the world and when so much is uncertain and I feel like a lot of people are compelled to share the art that they can create because that's what they do. That's, that's our, that's our lives as musicians and as opera lovers is that we're touched by something. And so we want to share that joy with other people. And so it is good to see that that is still happening just in different ways. Yeah. Well, speaking of sharing joy, if there is anything that you've seen or have been dying to watch and is now available uh, now that it's you know on live stream or, or accessible for free, uh, please share it. Uh, we'll throw up a post on on social media asking you to share what you've been listening to or watching uh, during this time of social distancing, and we'd love to know what's what's getting you fired up. And uh, of course, if you want to know about when uh, new episodes of Opera After Dark are coming out, the best thing for you to do is to subscribe wherever it is you're listening now. 
then you'll get the episodes to pop up uh, automatically when new ones are released. Uh, we hope that as you're doing all of this, you'll also uh, leave a review where you're listening to the podcast and, and also like us on social media. Uh, it helps other people find the podcast. We are so happy that you decided to tune in to Opera After Dark. Thank you for listening, uh, especially when uh, you have Lots of options available, as the airlines usually say. We know you have options, and we're happy you chose us. So yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you for listening, and please, everybody, stay safe, stay healthy, and we will be bringing you more Opera After Dark in the coming weeks. Yes, at some point. At some point, yes. <laughs> <laughs> please be patient with us, as these are uncertain times for us as well, and we are getting in a new groove so thank you for your patience with that i'm naomi i'm elspeth and i'm kyle thanks for listening bye bye